only to be thrown into the ocean, swallowed alive by a great fish, and spit out back on the coast of Palestine at the end of chapter 2 last week. Not only after experiencing God's great love and mercy. And today we'll be looking at chapter 3 as Jonah is given another chance to listen to the call of God on his life. We'll be reading out of the Pew Bible. It's on page 655 there. And while you're turning there, I want to ask a question to begin this morning. Have you ever done something you knew you were supposed to do, but didn't really expect to see the result that was intended? Have you ever done something that you knew you were supposed to, but you didn't really feel like the result was going to happen? Lately, Heidi and I have been watching a show on Netflix, and in this scene, there's, uh, there's the main character is, feels that she's been abandoned by her friends, right? She feels like she's alone on the earth, but she has this radio, and every night she goes to the radio, and she turns it on, and she talks to her friends. She doesn't really expect to hear from her friends, she doesn't really expect anything to happen, but she does it because she knows she's supposed to, she knows there's a chance but she doesn't really expect it to happen. I think we've all been in a similar situation where we know we're supposed to do something and maybe we just kind of do it because, well, we're supposed to, but I don't really think anything's going to come from this. Well, we see something similar today with Jonah in this passage. Upon giving a second chance from God, he does what God asks, but he does so in such a way that it's as if he doesn't really expect to see any fruit from it. And what's worse is he does it as if he doesn't want to see any fruit from it. So let's read together Jonah 3 as we both see this half-hearted ministry of Jonah, but also the good work of God that occurs nonetheless. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here this morning. We ask that we'd have open hearts and minds to hear what you would have for us. And Lord, that we would leave here transformed by your word, living differently because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In this text, I've broken it down into three points that I want us to see this morning. These are, first, Jonah's half-hearted obedience. Second, the power of God's word. And third, the great mercy of God. The first of these, which we see in verses 1 through 4, are Jonah's half-hearted obedience. Right? We open up chapter 3 of Jonah reading the same thing we read in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, this time a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And as readers, as we get to chapter 3, we're sitting on the edge of our seats, you know, what is he going to do this time? He didn't listen the first time, what's he going to do? Well, given a second chance from God to listen to his word, Jonah does, in fact, go to Nineveh, which would have been a 500-mile journey from Joppa, where the fish has probably spit him out. So ironically, there must be a sermon in and of itself in that, that if we listened to God the first time, we would have had to take less energy to get to where he wanted us to go. Here, he has to go even further to get to Nineveh the second time, 500 miles. And when he finally gets to the city, we are reminded that the city is a great city, both in its size and its importance. The text says it was a three days journey, or a visit took three days, although many have argued that its width, its breadth, would actually not have taken three days at that time. Now, whether it was a three days journey because he didn't walk in a straight line, whether it was a three days journey because the visit would have taken him longer than one day, the description in verse 3 about it being three days is supposed to be read in light of what we read in verse 4. And in verse 4, we see Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. Now, we need to be careful not to speculate too much about what any particular text of Scripture doesn't say. But we do need to notice that there is no further reference to Jonah doing a second or a third day's trip into the city. And if that's the case, then most of the city doesn't even hear his message. On top of that, his message is not a very cheery one. We read that he proclaims to Nineveh 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nothing about Yahweh. Nothing about a chance to repent. Nothing about why they will be overthrown. Just Nineveh's done for. Again, his truncated message seems to indicate that he really didn't feel like he was going to have success in this task. Or worse, that he didn't want to see success in his task. And as you're reading these first several verses of Jonah's ministry in Nineveh, speculation or not, you get the sense that he is not particularly excited to be there. And this is why I think we see here what I've called half-hearted obedience on the part of Jonah. See, Jonah's given a second chance after just experiencing the amazing grace and redemption of God in the belly of the fish to listen to God's word, to be obedient to him. But by the time he gets to Nineveh, it's like he's completely forgotten everything he's learned. And I think these first four verses show us what it looks like to be faithful to God in half-hearted obedience. And particularly, I think it shows us what it looks like to be obedient to God or faithful to God with our heads and our hands only, with our hearts not following suit. Jonah knows the message that God wants him to give, right? They've done great evil. He's coming to judge them. He delivers at least part of the message, 
but his heart is definitely not in it. He really did not expect to or really want to have success in the task that God has laid before him. Now, this text doesn't say anything about Jonah not wanting to have success, but we'll see next week as we get to chapter 4 that this is Jonah's main complaint. His main complaint is, Lord, why did I even have to come here? You could have done this without me. I didn't really want the Ninevites to come to full repentance. So we see here little effort, poor skills, a terrible sermon, yet an absolute miracle that his ministry has total success. Because although Jonah approaches this task with half-hearted obedience, the second thing we see here, primarily in verses 5 through 9, is the power of God's word. In verse 5, after Jonah's one-day truncated message of gloom and judgment, the text says the people of Nineveh believe God, and there is wholesale repentance from greatest to least in the city. The whole city's repentance compared with Jonah's message is so lopsided that it is a clear indicator of the power and the mercy of God's word here. Right? First, they respond in repentance, even though Jonah has not mentioned at all that there was an opportunity or an expectation for them to repent. Second, it says they believe in God, even though Jonah has not mentioned anything about God in this message. Right? For all they know, Jonah could have been saying, there's an army coming who's about to overthrow Nineveh. Prepare yourself because you're about to be overthrown. But they know better from even the weakness of Jonah's message. They know their hearts are stirred by God's word, nonetheless, that they know that this is in fact God speaking judgment on the way they've been living. And their response makes little sense in light of Jonah's message, again, being a clear indicator that this speaks more about the power of God's word here than the effectiveness of Jonah's ministry. Now, in the midst of this wholesale repentance in the city, the king hears this message and joins the city's response by covering himself with sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Now, what a sight that would have been to the people, right? We read this is a great city. This is Nineveh, probably the largest city in the world at that time, Jonah gives this one-day truncated message, kind of half-hearted, and the king responds by taking off his royal robe, by putting on sackcloth, and by sitting in ashes in full repentance. Remember here that kings in antiquity are seen often as divine, or at least subdivine. So this action of the king here shows his humiliation before God and in their eyes is the equivalence of divine authority bowing down to the God of Jonah. He even takes it one step further by making a decree that no man or beast should eat anything or drink water, but instead should repent and cry out to God for mercy. This is a bit strange, right? We read this, why would you include the animals in your national fast? But we know that at this time, this was already the custom of the Persians, of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians, to include animals in a, in a response like this as if to say that every man, woman, and child and everything that belongs to them is involved in this 
repentance in this fast. It was almost as if they were saying, yeah, this isn't just the people who realize that things are going pretty poorly for us here in Nineveh. We're going to make sure that God sees that everything in this city knows that they are being judged by him. And again, the irony in all this, just like we saw last week when the fish responds to God's voice the first time when Jonah doesn't seem to respond, we see here that often the animals in Nineveh, the animals, are more responsive to God's message than God's own people in Israel are. The whole book of Jonah, especially these last two chapters, show us that God's great compassion on those who repent and believe in him extended even outside the borders of Israel. But many of them, like Jonah, were so complacent and so content with the prosperity of the nation that they would not have been happy with the idea of God extending his mercy and blessings on those who were considered their enemies. And the irony here is that the king calls for even the animals to repent, and there's a wholesale repentance. One day, truncated message, wholesale repentance. Nonetheless, the king's response here, we see that God's word is more powerful and effective than our delivery of it or even our desire of its fruitfulness. Again, this is not an excuse to be lazy in our discipleship. It's not an excuse to be lazy in our evangelism, but it's a reminder that God is greater than our individual attempts to spread his word. That God's word is more powerful than any mode of evangelism, than any attempt that we may have in spreading his word. The king then gives one final decree to the people. He says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Again, this is interesting because Jonah doesn't say anywhere in the text that their downfall is a result of their violence. But whether they're just trying to cover all their bases or perhaps their violent ways toward their enemies had started to affect their own lives, the king calls everyone to peace. And their repentance and their humility here began to give them open eyes to look around and say, perhaps the way we are living is not in line with how we should be. So the king says all this, and then says my absolute favorite thing in this passage. Almost tongue-in-cheek, almost a passing comment, he says, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And where have we heard this before in Jonah? Go back to Jonah 1. We go back to verse 6 where the captain of the ship goes down to Jonah in the belly of the ship and is begging him, pleading with him to pray to his God and says, Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And we said this a couple weeks ago. At that moment, Jonah had every opportunity to say, oh yeah, my God could totally hear us and keep us all from perishing. Well, here again we read the king almost in passing says, who knows? God might, maybe this God will relent. Maybe he won't bring judgment on us. Who knows? Jonah knows. Jonah knows that God delivers and saves those who call on him because Nonetheless, because he's just experienced it in chapter 2 in the belly of the fish. He just cried out to God in, in humility. He just cried out to God in repentance. 
and just experience God's great saving deliverance. And here the king says, who knows? Maybe this God will do this. Unlike the sailors who are told by Jonah that this God is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Ninevites here talk about God in generic terms throughout this passage and are left speculating whether or not this God would hear their cries for mercy. The response of the Ninevites does not match up with the message or the intent of Jonah, but what we see here is the great power of God's word that is greater than any mode or message of evangelism that we can come up with. Sure, Jonah's intent is half-hearted here, but God's word does not return to him void, because as we saw last week, salvation belongs to the Lord. The final thing I want to see in this passage this morning, looking at verse 10, is the great mercy of God. We read in verse 10, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now whether genuine or not, it doesn't matter. God shows his compassion and his effectiveness of his word on the hearts of sinners. There are many passages in scripture like this one that show God changing his mind depending on humans' actions, right? Here we read, God saw what they did and he relented. And there's many passages in scripture that talk as if God is changed by the actions of humanity. But we need to understand these passages in light of who God is and balance this with his sovereignty in light of our free will. Let me start by saying that nothing we do can change God's will. Right? God's sovereign will is set in stone, especially when it comes to the redemption of sinners. But there's wiggle room in God's plan for this world that allows us to participate in it. If that's not the case, then there would be no reason for us to pray to God. Right? Scripture talks, to, talks about us praying to God in order that God would hear our prayers and respond to it. If there was no ability for us to participate in God's will, we would have no reason to pray. The way that I have always explained to myself and sometimes to others the the balance between God's will and his sovereignty and our free will in it is like being on a raft in a river. Right? You get on a raft in a river, you cannot take that raft up onto the shore and make any progress. That is outside of God's will. You are on the raft, you are in the river, you are going with the current down according to God's will. Yes, you can try to turn around and try to row against the current, but you're not going to go anywhere. You can try to go against God's will, but you're not going to go anywhere. You're still going to go down the river according to the current. Along that trip down the river, there's going to be some obstacles. There's going to be a rock here. There's going to be a clear path here. There's going to be a whirlpool here. And God gives you, gives us the opportunity to say, you know what, God? I think I'm going to hit that rock today. I think that things will go better if I aim myself for that rock. And God says, okay, go for it. We hit the rock. We mess up our raft. We spend the next several months fixing our raft, healing our wounds, saying, God, we should have known better. That was stupid. But we haven't affected God's will in any way. We're still on the raft. We're still in the river. We're still going down to where he's going to have us go. And I think we see here 
especially when it comes to the redemption of sinners, that God very much wants to see people seek him so that he can save them. And we see here this idea of that we are all sinful people. We are all destined for judgment. But God's heart is quote-unquote changed. He relents when we come to him in humility, when we express in repentance to him that we realize our sinfulness and we trust in him, he relents from that judgment and extends to us eternal life. We see the same thing happening here, where the Ninevites are destined for judgment, in which Jonah has come to preach to them. But upon hearing of their humility, upon realizing like Jonah did last week, that before God they are helpless in their sin, the Lord relents and extends to them salvation. So this isn't God changing his mind where he was going to go this way and he's saying, oh, you know what? I've actually decided that this is a much better way to do it. What he is saying is, I'm giving you the option. You're going down this river. You can either keep going down the river the way you want and you're going to hit every rock and you're going to hit every whirlpool and you're going to end up hanging on for dear life and it's not going to go well for you. Or I'm going to give you the opportunity to say, you're not going the way I want you to. Look at the clear path over here. Look at the part of the river that's really calm. Look at the part of the river that doesn't have these obstacles. If you do that, this is going to go much better for you. We see here that there's a very real sense where the combination of the power of God's word, the free will to trust and respond to it here by the Ninevites, causes God to relent of this judgment and extend to them deliverance. But this isn't a begrudging response from God. This isn't him saying, oh, I was going to do this thing and you made me change and I have to go now do this thing. This is one of great love and great joy as he is a God who we read is, a slow, is slow to anger, is abounding in steadfast love, who desires that no one would perish. When God relents of judgment in order to extend salvation, it's exactly what he's hoping he'll be able to do. So we see in this verse the great mercy of God in giving them 40 days to repent and then is gracious and merciful to show compassion on them when they do repent. And although no sacrifice is made on behalf of their sins, God is pleased with their broken and contrite hearts, which David describes in in Psalm 51 saying, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. So in Jonah's ministry to the Ninevites here in chapter 3, we've seen these three things, right? We've seen the half-hearted obedience from Jonah. We've seen the power of God's word. And we've seen God's great mercy. And out of those three things, as I wrap up here, I want to give one takeaway from each of those three things for us this morning. First, regarding Jonah's half-hearted obedience. Although an absolute miracle that God is able to use Jonah's message to work a great wonder in Nineveh, there is one particular thing I want us to think about here. It is possible for us who have experienced and known God's mercy to not respond in holistic faithfulness, but to sometimes just be going through the motions. And what I mean by that is that we often are, that often our life of faith does not involve our hearts, our head, and our hands. I think, actually, 
one of the temptations for us is the longer that we are disciples of Jesus, the easier it is to no longer have our hearts be stirred by the gospel and have this desire and compassion to see the lost come to know and be saved by Jesus. It's not a natural thing that happens, but I think it's a temptation that the longer we've been disciples, the longer that we've been in church, the less that the gospel hits our hearts and we're reminded of the great amazing grace that God has poured out for us and that same amazing grace that he wants to pour out on those around us. And like Jonah, we can intellectually know the message that Jesus died for our sins to give us new life in him. And maybe, although not always, we even act, we're even active in our faith through service and witness. I think one of the hardest things to do is to keep our heart in line with that intellectual ascent and even that, that active obedience at times. Right? Well, I know I'm supposed to do this, so I'll just do it because I'm supposed to. You know, I know God says this, so I'm supposed to say it to others. But I think one of the hardest things for humanity is to keep our hearts focused on the gospel and changed and affected by it daily. I think it's hard to wake up each morning to have an ongoing burden for our hearts to reach the lost with the gospel and to experience again for ourselves the great depths of God's mercy and great grace for us. I actually think humanity's natural bent is towards legalism and justifying ourselves. I think we have to wake up each morning and die to that, that, that bent that says, I need to prove myself before God. I need to prove myself before man. I need to do all the right things in order that God's pleased with me. And instead to say, my heart is so filled with thanks, thankfulness and joy because of the grace that God has given me that I can't help but wake up and spread his word this morning. I can't help but wake up and feel a compassion and a burden for the lost because of the grace that I've experienced. So one of the warnings from this text this morning, which we'll see at even greater lengths next week, is not to let our faithfulness to God be half-hearted, but to be fully committed to a deeper understanding of who he is in our minds that shapes and transforms our hearts into ones of active compassion which compels us to go out into this world and be active in sharing and bearing witness to God's great mercy. In other words, our faithfulness to God should affect our entire being, involving our head, our hearts, and our hands. Second, regarding the power of God's word. I feel like a broken record throughout the book of Jonah as we say things like God can still use us when we're slow to respond or God can still use us even when we don't do what he's asking us to do. But I think it's once again important to highlight the great encouragement that God often uses us in spite of ourselves and our failures. And again, it sounds like a broken record, but we remember week one we talked about that this story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, is not really a story about Jonah. If we read it trying to learn about Jonah, we're going to walk away saying, that guy wasn't a great example for us to follow most of the time. But when we read the book of Jonah and we understand this is a story about God, this is a story about seeing who God is and what he wants to do through us, what we see here is that even when Jonah's message and attitude isn't the best here, even when our own attitudes and our message isn't the best, 
The book of Jonah reminds us that it is God's great power and the power of his word that transforms the hearts of broken humans when they hear it. When we run, God still is faithful. When we're slow to respond to his grace, God still is faithful. When our mode of evangelism, when our intent in evangelism isn't quite where it's supposed to be, God is still faithful. And again, even though we'll see more of this next week as well, it is important to see in this passage the continued power of God's word in light of the weakness of those who are meant to bear testimony to it. So continue to take heart this morning that God's word is more powerful than our presentations of it. Have the boldness and the confidence to faithfully proclaim the world, sorry, the word that this world desperately needs to hear, knowing that you are just called to be faithful. It is the Spirit's work. It is God's powerful word that is going to change hearts of stones and bring them to hearts that are ready to respond in faithfulness. And third, regarding the mercy of God. Over and over in the book of Jonah, we have seen God's mercy extended to those who we wouldn't expect it to. Right, The pagan sailors who are seen as praying to all their gods, yet come to know the Lord, Yahweh, as the one true God. Jonah, who runs from the Lord just to find his mercy, save him from drowning and being eaten by a fish. And here the Ninevites, who are renowned for their violence and their brutality, especially towards God's people, but renounce their violent ways and put themselves at the mercy of God of the universe. We see here that God's mercy is not given to one ethnicity. It is not given to the people who do the right things necessarily. It is not given to people for any qualifier other than those on whom God chooses to have mercy in light of their response of faith and trust in him. And if this is the case, then we again should have the boldness and the confidence, but also the deep compassion to bring God's word to everyone we meet so that God's great mercy can be extended to all who trust and have faith in the gospel. Jonah isn't great in this passage. Jonah hasn't been great in this book, and we'll see, you know, spoilers for next week, he's not particularly great in chapter 4 either. But let's be honest, neither are we some of the time. This book is about the power and the mercy and the compassion of God that overcomes even the weakness and frailty of humanity. I want to leave you with the words of one of my favorite songs right now. When I was at the Gospel Coalition National Conference last year, I I, I learned this song. I think Matt Boswell and Matt Papa wrote it. It's called, His Mercy is More. And the chorus is simple, and the refrain says this, and I'll close with this. It says, Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Let's pray with that in mind. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this message that reminds us that your mercy is more. Lord, that even when our hearts aren't in it, even when our attempts aren't great, Lord, your word is more powerful than our own. 
that your mercy is greater than even our compassion. Lord, what a joy that you would use us even when we aren't great. But Lord, may that not push us to laziness. May that not push us to a feeling of we can just kind of go about it half-hearted because you'll cover the rest, Lord. But may that compel us to be better witnesses of your gospel. May that compel us to wake up each morning and to be reminded anew of the great grace that we've experienced. May our hearts be transformed each day as we remember the cross. May it overflow with compassion. May it overflow with joy and thankfulness. And Lord, when we are weak, we remember we are strong in you. When our message is maybe not the best, we know that your word is greater. So Lord, next time we have an opportunity to witness, let us not worry so much about what we would say, but Lord, may we bring up in conversation what you have already said and what you have already done. Lord, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. May that be the refrain of our life. May that be the refrain of our our evangelism. May that be the refrain of our discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.